No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello and welcome to Know You Tell It, a hybrid story incubator slash performance series. Each Know You Tell It participant develops their true life tale on the page and then switches with a partner to perform each other's work on stage. Because nothing informs your story like hearing someone else perform your story. I'm Erica Iverson and I work with Know You Tell It as a director and dramaturg. The stories from this particular show really stuck with me. Crowded into the back room of Jimmy's number 43, you could feel the audience leaning forward to catch every word. Nicholas Maestros writes of unexpected revelations during a visit with his mother in Collecting, read for us by Jeff Wills. Collecting. My mother has a pen pal. I didn't know this about her. Not until this morning when she told me that he, the pen pal, would be coming to the house today. His name is Adam. You remember Adam, my mother said, which is, I suppose, true. I knew he was the son of my mother's childhood friend, Mary Ann, and I knew that Mary Ann had died some years back, which is apparently when the letters began. I also knew that shortly after his mother had passed away, Adam was in a storm, a bad one. It took the house, spared only the walls of the bathroom he was hiding behind, scared and huddled and clutching a photo album, the photo album. Photos of the woman who had told him exactly what to do in the case of a tornado. Adam is 25 now, a few years younger than me. I have a hard time imagining my mother writing to him at a computer or sitting with a slip of stationery in her lap, forming the salutation, Dear Adam. How often, I wonder, how many letters? It is a hot summer day in Xenia, Ohio. Our windows are open, so we hear when his car pulls up the hill. My mother, who's been moving all morning, little household tasks that will make her feel as though she isn't waiting, goes to open the door as though she might as well. She was on her way to the bedroom anyway. I'm not sure I should join her there or whatever moment they're about to have, and stay with my book at the kitchen counter. My mother laughs, and then the back of her shirt flutters as she waves. I hear someone call her Sharon. She turns to me, no longer pretending there had been anything else on the docket for this day. She tells me to come on. I try to remember if I've ever met Adam. Uh, scratch that. I know I've met him a long ago trip to Marianne's house in Tiffin, though now it is like recalling someone else's memory. Told so many times it becomes your own. A boy in the backyard, on the porch, something cupped in his hands. What? A boy turning, barely turning, not wanting to give up his attention to say hello. Perhaps it was my sister who went to Tiffin then. Of course, you know Nick, my mother says after they hug. According to her, I was there. I shake Adam's hand. It is a weak shake, which makes me wonder how much he'd wanted to meet me, though it may just be part of his demeanor. He is skinny, and his checkered shirt is large on him. His hair is cut simply and clean, and his voice is small, his eyeline loose. He is not here to be noticed, but what I do notice immediately, though my mother has never suggested it, is that Adam is gay. My mother takes Adam on a tour of the house. 
Conversation is light, sprinkled with tiny updates on Adam's life. It hasn't been long since his last letter. I learned that he is about to attend a school for mortuary science, which I find unusual. <laughs> but I don't ask about it, mostly because my mother takes it in stride. It's nothing new. Also, as not to disturb my mother's efforts to keep things lively, fun. Still, as we move through the garden outside and listen to the names of flowers, there is a tension, a sense of delay. There will be more to this visit than tours and platitudes, and they know it. They savor it. My mother starts to redden from the heat, as she does. Coffee, she suggests. Iced coffee. Adam doesn't drink coffee, but he'll take a glass of water. Inside, the three of us, the two of them and I, sit at the kitchen table. Did I ever tell you, my mother says, and I can feel it, can't I? A break in the tension? Did I ever tell you about Marianne's grandfather? No, Adam says, though I can tell by his smile that she has. <laughs> my mother shakes her head, already beginning to settle her vision into the middle distance, somewhere between memory and performance. Her grandfather, she says. Your great-grandfather. Oof, awful man. <laughs> he scared us both. But Marianne, she had some courage. It might not have seemed so to you, but when she was a girl, seven or eight or so, watch out. He would sit there, her grandfather. He was a heavy fellow. Big, pregnant belly. Sit there in his chair under his own weight, arm drooped over the side when it wasn't bringing a cigarette up to his face. He'd sit and smoke and stare off while the TV was going. And one day, Marianne just waltzes in, stands right in front of him, cranes herself over and screams, I hate your guts! <laughs> Just like that. Just shrieks it. I hate your guts. And this deflated man suddenly fills up, cigarette in mouth, taking off his belt. And I yell. My mother takes a breath. Run, Marianne! <laughs> and she does. And he's chasing her, but he's bow-legged and slow, and I'm hanging back, yelling louder than I need to, cheering her on, and Marianne's face is all red, and she's happy and excited, dancing around the other side of the kitchen table, even though she knows she's in for a beating, just enjoying the moment. <laughs> My mother sits back. I know she can actually hear those voices. Marianne's yelling, I hate your guts! Hers yelling, run! <laughs> I know Adam can too. The stories continue. The time Marianne stayed over at my mother's house and peed on the new velvet couch. <laughs> Sharon! <laughs> Sharon, wake up, I peed! <laughs> well, you just sleep in it. <laughs> my mother dried the spot with an oscillating fan the next morning and told her parents <laughs> the time they were home alone and found Marianne's grandfather dead in his bed one foot sticking up straight from under the sheet how <laughs> Marianne called her mother at work to tell her like it was any other thing yeah he's dead mom <laughs> <laughs> yep dead <laughs> The time someone stole the clothes out of their lockers at the pool when they were 13, they had to walk across Tiffin in little bikinis. And we were developed. <laughs> How Marianne wore pink for my mother at her wedding. Even with that red hair, my mother says. She never got to return the favor. 
By the time Marianne got married, my mother was somewhere else with her own husband, her own kids. Their lives had veered. Listening to her speak, I understand why my mother wanted me here. These stories, they aren't only for Adam. Adam is the catalyst, the medium. These stories are really for her. My mother is in her middle 50s. She's been fighting multiple sclerosis for the last 10 years. The feeling in her arms and legs, the tips of her fingers, her tongue comes and goes, and now menopause. She's heavier. She looks tired, continually pulling back her graying hair in a sweat. These stories, Adam, they're letters. They are reminders of the girl and the woman she was before she was my mother. I am here now not to meet Adam. I'm here to meet her. But just as this new understanding completes itself, my mother leaves the table to use the bathroom. She stumbles a little on sleeping feet. Adam becomes aware of me again. New York, he says, which surprises me. Did I mention New York? That's exciting, he says. I can see it in a recent letter from my mother. Nick's moving to New York City in the fall. I feel flattered. With your partner, is that right? Yes, I say. We're excited. That's great. That's great. I ask him if he's dating anyone. He tells me about a man he's been seeing in Finlay, a, an art teacher, says it's going well. Is this trivial, I wonder? A bit easy, moves, programs, dating. I, I'd like to say something about how remarkable this afternoon has been, how grateful, if grateful is the word, I am to sit here at the table with the two of them, but I'm not sure how it will sound. I'm also aware of a guilt. Here we are, the two of us, collecting the outdated visions of our mothers, only mine is still alive. Adam pulls out his laptop and fiddles with it until my mother returns. He wants to show her something. A home video. Adam, age three, telling his mother he's done eating. An old woman, his grandmother, sitting next to him smoking. And in the corner of the screen, a dust buster cleaning the ashes and crumbs left by the grandmother. Is that Marianne? My mother screams, referring to the dustbuster. Adam nods, and my mother puts a hand on the table for support as she laughs, as they both laugh. The video is 10 seconds long. Adam puts it on a loop. When was this? My mother asks. 88? 89? We were both clean freaks at about the same time. I was picking lint out of the carpet so often that Nick began to imitate me, picking up nothing. <laughs> the connections continue. Marianne, before she was diagnosed, wanted to be a nurse. My mother is a physical therapist. Marianne was diagnosed with scleroderma, an autoimmune disease, and three years later, my mother was diagnosed with MS. Some connections are not said, but they're there. I know my mother must be asking, if she hadn't known all along, how it was she and Marianne both raised gay sons. Marianne called me, my mother says, taking a turn from her usual high spirits. It had been years. She said she wanted to see me, and I knew. Here also a connection. 
According to my mother, Adam wanted her to be a pallbearer. He says he does not remember this, and I believe him. We're beginning to approach the real object of his journey. The missing pieces, the gaps, things my mother must not have mentioned in her letters. I'll never forget it, my mother says. You at the wake. You saw me from across the room just when I arrived. You walked right up to me, took my hand, and said, Let's go see my mom. You were strong, my mother says. You were 12 and stoic. He is stoic. My mother has been close to tears many times today, as have I, just listening, but Adam sits with solid posture, his hands folded before him. Stoic, yes, but gentle, seeming to say with every bend in the conversation, every new and creeping emotion, this is okay. I wasn't always strong, Adam says. It was scary seeing Mom on the ventilator. It was scarier seeing her when they took her off the ventilator. She struggled for breath. It took two weeks for her to die. It was better once she was on morphine. Why they didn't give it to her sooner, I don't know. Nothing happens fast in a hospital, I guess. The last thing I remember her saying, maybe two days before she passed, to the nurse, with barely any air, she said, this is my son. My mother puts her hand on his. Things are, there are things happening here that I am unable to navigate. What I am collecting is facts. Adam and my mother are collecting as sensation, energy, God. I see images of the tangible, the, the lives of people as they sort them, catalog them, the dates of their histories. But it isn't history Adam is here to document. He already has the photographs, the old movies, the soap opera digest she left a doodle in along with the weather that day and a stain. He's here for something else. You know, I was there, my mother says, when she died. Adam shakes his head, his hands still folded under my mother's. He hadn't been there when Marianne died, and though his composure is steady, I see it in the seconds he takes before shaking his head there beneath. Something not altogether prepared for the moment he wanted. I'd like to tell you about it, my mother says. Adam nods. There again, the seconds before he nods. Adam and my mother leave the table, go out to the back patio. It wasn't discussed where they or I were to go. It was automatic. There can be no audience for this. Unsure of what else to do, I go down to the basement to what is, for the moment, still my room, and I do what I know to do. I write it down. All of it. Everything that was said and what I imagine they're saying right now on the patio, I know there's no way to document it all. I'll do the best I can. Several weeks later, as I pack up my room, 
maybe for the last time, I find an old newspaper clipping. The Tiffin Herald, June 2001. A boy, maybe 14, pictured alone next to a house that has been demolished by a storm, and below the picture, a caption. My mother saved my life. I close it carefully into a manila folder and find a place for it in a box marked important. In a meditation on meaning and memory, performance, and parenthood, Jeff Wills shares a moving history of his career as a physical comedian and his current use of deep knee bends. Switching it up, here's Nicholas Maestros reading Lost Track. Lost Track. She walks me back a ways from the outdoor amphitheater to a sunny glen encircled by pine trees and she teaches me how to swing dance. <laughs> Idyllic. Complete with her Civil War era gown and my Nico the Flying Monkey costume, 21 and new in love. Hands clasped, palm to palm, elbows bent and all the time slightly pushing, slightly pulling, slipping in and out and under elbows, clasping fingers and feeling that centripetal tug, a concurrent syncopation. Slow, slow, quick, quick. Today. My daughter, sat as yet unsteady there on the bed and taking mental notes, is the greatest dance audience you could ever hope for. She's all of six months old, and she's gulping up pirouettes between her chortles, eyes wide and absorbent of her mother there at the foot of our bed, coursing through some distant memory of a path of motion. I stand, bleary-eyed from the streaming episodes of Lost I've been watching in my infantile nocturnal habits, I'm exhausted, and as ever in awe of the moves I've seen my wife perform hundreds of times before, nearly as awestruck as I am of the little attentive person we made. Being as she is at yet so young an age, we can only hope our daughter inherited her mother's coordination. I am a frustrated dancer at best. At worst, we'd need a string of expletives and some crying to describe my choreographic ability. <laughs> I was a physical comedian. It's an old-fashioned occupation, but I'm one who appreciates being behind the times. It took me some time to figure that out. Time's funny. Flashback. Imagine an off-season ski lodge, surrounded by lush, mountainous green, and filled with performers who eventually have a lot of time on their hands. Theater West Virginia is a tremendous summer stock experience for your first time out. I turned 21 there. I learned a lot more than just the Lindy Hop there. But we wouldn't last. Oh, we lasted for years. With all the time in the world, we wound our way from West Virginia up to a Brooklyn brownstone together. But we were lost, alas, the month that terrorists changed our landscape. That September, she landed and took off for a year's tour of a swing dance review show entitled, appropriately enough, Swing. <laughs> I've gone over it again and again, and that was the timing. It all, all within that September. And holy shit. Just holy shit. Slow, slow, quick, quick. The best thing about a breakup. I think gamely to myself backstage, 
adjusting my bright red fez, <laughs> is the incredible motivation to work. <laughs> the Northeast Theater in La Plume, La Plume, Pennsylvania, was using an airplane hangar for their first uh, performance space, converted for the inaugural production of our contemporary Commedia dell'arte company, Zuppa del Giorno. <laughs> Theater, you know, is widely considered to be behind the times. But it takes a particular appreciation to specialize in a form of theater that had its heyday in 14th century Italy. The music swells in such a way that I know I have less than a minute before my entrance to begin the original play entitled Noble Aspirations. My tongue, unconscious, trips over the few Italian words I need to use, still trying to work out the seemingly subtle difference between Marchese and Marchesa. A few quick seconds now, a couple of hops in place, a realization, and then the worst, most paralyzing stage fright of my entire life. I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to say. There's no script. Commedia dell'arte plays are improvised from a scenario, a basic structure of plot points to be hit roughly in sequence. Our scenario has been constructed and reconstructed constructed over the course of some nine months. I knew it so inside out, I was bored of it, bored out of my mind. So perhaps it's not so surprising that I never actually thought about the fact that eventually I would be here, breaths away from stepping out on stage and giving birth to the entire play alone with not one slow clue in my poor, pointy, befezzed little head. <laughs> it's 4 a.m., and I'm staring at the ceiling of our bedroom, and I'm listening very, very intently for a noise coming from the next room. Any noise whatsoever. I don't want to get up and check, because by getting up to check, I will be admitting to the possibility that my baby has suffocated at some point in the night, and that I will, in fact, and at that moment, be checking on a nightmare for the rest of my life. I do want to check, because better I'm first introduced to this nightmare than my wife. Because even if I can't do much of anything to make it any better at all, at least there's not that unspeakable, immediate perception of that just wrong coldness that tears her entire existence to shreds, and damn it, Christ, the baby. The baby should have woken at three o'clock. Three o'clock at the latest. For the bottle, she usually falls asleep in my arms drinking, so get up, get the fuck up, and over the edge, and don't wake up the cat on the way. <laughs> A whimper, barely audible, from past the doorway. Sleepy, dizzy with relief, I could weep. I'm hanging upside down, by one hand from a scaffolding secured by uh, sandbags in the middle of our dilapidated ballroom in the heart of downtown Scranton, thinking about my life. <laughs> a few years and two productions later, and Zuppa del Giorno <laughs> has found an idiom. We take 500-year-old theatrical tradition and use it to remind people of less old stuff and how great it was, hopefully. Our host theater company has a new name and a new lease on life and on a promising new location for our third production. 
which aims to bring a silent film to life on stage. After running about and over and through and juggling hats, rehearsal is over for the evening. The next morning, I and my fellow actors will, for the first time, assume the identities of famous silent film stars. Buster Keaton, the great Stoneface, falls to me. I've been puzzling over how to portray his trademark stoicism, watching hours on hours of decades-old celluloid. There's an enormous mirror mounted to one wall of this abandoned ballroom, still partially covered up uh, in some torn wallpaper from a lunatic decision in the 70s, and I use it to try to once again find Buster. I pace before it, toes lifted high and oversized wingtips. The mirror's proportions, to me, are not dissimilar from the magical movie screens to Keaton in his short masterpiece, Sherlock Jr. In Sherlock Jr., as in just about all of Buster's short films, He's against odds to win the hand of a lovely girl, said odds made impossible by his own innocent idiocy. Idiocy, I feel, in spades, but <laughs> innocence feels a little less successful. It has been years since my split with my West Virginia dancer, and for over a year now, I've been with a dancer from farther north and east. We're talking about getting an apartment, Talks that somehow make me feel like someone is trying to take a hammer and nails to my feet. <laughs> and I love her, and I want to escape her, and I love her. The mirror's to my right. But I don't want to lose the position I'm in, so I open my eyes as wide as I can to glance to the side without turning. Wham. A buster. Eyes, then head. It works. Eyes, head. There he is. Slow eyes, quick body. Back to the eyes. It's a revelation. He's not stoic. He feels it all, powerfully. It just gets shortcut directly into his body, as if the feeling is so powerful it can only be processed, processed with his whole figure. It bypasses his face altogether, apart from the eyes. The eyes see it all, happening take it in, and route it directly to the body. It's a simple mechanic, rhythmic, and so clear at this moment in my reflection. Buster sees something with his eyes first, and his feet are always a beat behind them, reacting. Eyes, head. Eyes, body. As Keaton is purported to have advised, think slow, act fast. What kills me most about late hours at work nowadays isn't hating the job, because I don't, nor the longing to instead spend that time in a theater, although I do, nor even the exhaustion of such prolonged desk time. Now, what kills me most, as I sit in my unfenestrated office, frantically revising a strategic plan, is the thought that my daughter might not wake, be awake by the time I get home. This will mean that my daughter has not seen me today. It's suffocating. I inhale slowly, acknowledging to myself that I need to take just a moment to honor a longing to see her. I'll simply wage an ongoing battle otherwise, uh, between trying to think about 
what I'm doing and thinking about what I want to be doing. I exhale, loud and quick. The framed photographs of her at various stages of her first months are right there waiting to the left of my monitor, and I allow myself a few moments pause. One appreciable thing about working in a museum is that they're quite understanding about personal decoration <laughs> when properly presented. <laughs> a repository for ancient works also holds a little wall space etched out for our new creation. I don't understand what the issue is. Aren't you the director? <laughs> Didn't you tell him what to make? Can't you just tell him what to do and get it done? Scram. <laughs> She's standing there, hip cocked out in half a costume, unable to make eye contact. It's uncertain to this day whether or not she's trying to insult me. <laughs> Bursting out like this in front of the cast in the middle of a wide open black painted stage that serves to pop her out in my vision like some floating, surly, bleeding goat. <laughs> the only thing louder than her petulant complaint is her backdrop. We've been delivered a terrible set. There's no tweeze around it. In fact, there's hardly one way around this thing. <laughs> and especially in the dark, at breakneck speed with both hands occupied by puppets. <laughs> it's flat, ugly, barely functional, and only loosely related to the play itself. It's my first time at the helm of a Zuppa del Giorno production as director, and it could not be to date described as easy going. I am pissed. I decide it's not her intention to insult me. She is young. This actress hasn't seen how the show is always a shambles up until a terrifyingly late moment. <laughs> <laughs> and that not knowing is an ingredient. She isn't aware of the efforts made to communicate with the reticent set director, uh, the absentee tech director, or the overburdened producing artistic director. She hasn't the perspective to realize that no one who works for this theater has been paid in months. That every single piece of work we solicit from someone is not only badly needed, but non-negotiable on our end. And finally, she has no vantage on the insane hours I've spent doing everything I possibly can, the pressure's on me to deliver something special nor that the theater company itself is just about to fall into irreparable pieces. I have no perspective on that last one, just an intuition, one that will eventually prove to be true. So I, from my perch at my rickety desk wedged amongst the house seats, smile, dangerously slow, which she doesn't see because she's an actress who avoids looking you in the eye when she feels vulnerable. I sigh and realize it doesn't matter. This one conflict taken in its turn is just a passive-aggressive, no-win situation. And though for me it is presently infuriating, tomorrow it will live in my past. In a quick two weeks, I'll return home to my wife and her uncomplicated, lovable cynicism. And it will not be for the actress, eventually because she is young. She'll gradually, gradually live on into her future, well past the remaining lifespan of Zupa del Giorno. 
and have many, many more moments like this, up to when and if she learns. Josephine. That's my daughter, Josephine. Josephine arcs her back and kicks, screaming, when she doesn't want to go to sleep at night. She's doing it now. <laughs> Threatening to tumble out of my arms and crack her enormous baby skull, 110 percentile, on the edge of the crib below. You can be sure we've been at this for some time when I'm no longer in the rocker, nor walking her in circles, instead standing at cribside doing deep knee bounces. <laughs> this is my last resort, and only comes into play when Jo is patently exhausted, so tired that she has no hope of putting herself to sleep. It's a distress in which she is her own worst enemy, trapped in a self-perpetuating cycle of misery. There's nothing quite like a completely irrational human being to turn you into a completely irrational human being. <laughs> it's involuntary. I know I need to be the opposite, to be calm, yet there's nothing I can do to find that in myself. She's actually hurting herself. I'm pinned and helpless. It's getting worse and worse, damaging her more and more. I'm losing it. Her wailing shifts. Drops, calms, falling in time with me. Shh, shh, shh. Deep me hops. <laughs> you don't really dare to believe it. After nearly an hour of desperate struggle for acquiescence. And then, too, there's the dreaded spontaneous consciousness returning act of actually putting her down in the crib. So, you keep the rhythm up. After her eyelids have ceased to flutter, and you trail away your shh-shh-shh-ing, and you stay there, by the crib, exhausted, grateful, with her. Becoming a parent is a unique form of planned obsolescence. I can't compete with her. It's a fool's errand to try. The best we can do is to meet each other somewhere in between. I'm hopelessly behind, and she's hopelessly ahead. For now. Eventually, that will change for her, and she'll just be ahead of me, hopeless no more. Looking back for me only occasionally. Forever. Well, for as much of ever as I get, anyway. I ease her into the crib, nearly falling in with her myself, and think her flashbacks will never feature anyone other than the me of now, the me of late 30s, of enthusiasm for things like podcasts, crossword puzzles, and watching silent comedies with my own soundtrack. <laughs> She'll never know the me of then, the actor, the purist, the fool. I'm forever behind her times, which is a good thing for me. I get a do-over of sorts, my past lost. I don't have to wade through my mistakes and indiscretions, 
I can be the best I can be for her from here on out, with the benefits of perspective, timing, and initiative. Slow, slow, quick, quick. My baby sleeps. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.